From time to time, over many years of preaching, we've offered a series called You Asked For It, in which we invite the congregation to submit sermon requests, kind of like a DJ at a wedding, only without the dancing. Now, you can probably guess some of the most requested sermon topics. Why is there so much suffering in the world? What's the unforgivable sin? How can I know God's will for my life? Who did Cain marry? But there's one request that always comes up, and you can probably guess that one too. I'd like to hear a message on the book of Revelation. It is far and away the book of the Bible pastors are most often asked to preach from, and also the book of the Bible pastors are least likely to preach from, except maybe Leviticus. Now, now why is that? Well, for one thing, the book of Revelation is frightening. A dragon with ten horns and seven heads. A pale horse with a rider named Death. Famine, plagues, earthquakes. Pretty scary stuff. For a second thing, it's difficult to interpret. It's full of symbolic imagery, mysterious numbers, strange beings, and inscrutable riddles. And thirdly, it's controversial. Churches have split, pastors have been fired, battle lines have been drawn over the time of Christ's return, or the meaning of 666, or when the rapture is going to happen. The book of Revelation is frightening and difficult and controversial, but it's also incredibly important. It's not just part of the Bible, it's the conclusion of the Bible. It ties together everything God has been saying and doing since he first spoke the universe into existence. Eugene Peterson calls the revelation God's last word on everything. Now, full disclosure, in nearly four decades of preaching, I've only preached one sermon series on the book of Revelation, and that was at another church. So it's about time we covered it here at Grace. Now, Pastors Leah and John gave us a sneak preview a couple of weeks ago, but today and for the next seven weeks, we're going to dive into this scary, difficult, controversial, and important book of the Bible. But I need to give you a heads up. It's probably not going to be the series that most people are looking for when it comes to this book. We're not going to try to predict the time of Christ's return and the end of the world. We're not going to identify the Antichrist. Well, actually we are, but probably not the way you're hoping for. We're not going to wade into the pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib debate. And if you don't know what that means, consider yourself lucky. What we are going to do is to discover what this book of the Bible has to say about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Because that's our theme for this ministry year, disciple-making, with God, with others, for the world. In the fall, we went to the book of Exodus and learn from Moses how to live a with-God life. In the winter, we turn to the one-anothers of the New Testament and learn how to live a with-others life. During Lent, we focused on the I Am statements of Jesus and learned how to live a with-Jesus life. And this spring, we're going to this final book of the Bible to discover what a for-the-world life looks like. Now, when we were laying out the teaching journey for the year, we weren't planning on teaching from the book of Revelation. But as we thought and prayed about how to address the 
outward, for the world aspect of discipleship, we somehow found our way to this book and to the work of some contemporary scholars and commentators. And we discovered that the book of Revelation really is a for-the-world book. And Revelation tells the story of God's final victory over evil through Christ and invites us to play our part in that story. In other words, it's a missional book. So we're really excited to be preaching on it and feel like, feel like it's exactly what the church needs to hear these days. So with that in mind, let's get started. Uh, we're going to look at the book thematically rather than chapter by chapter, in part because there are 22 chapters, and I don't think anyone's requesting a 22-sermon series, but, but mainly because most scholars agree that the book is meant to be read thematically rather than chronologically. But we will begin our study with chapter 1, which will introduce the major themes and message of the book and offer some guidelines for how to read and live this remarkable book. Now, we're going to break the chapter up into four movements. Now, I don't usually like to tell you the four movements up front, lest you check out on me. But since Revelation can be so challenging to understand, for the sake of clarity, I'll give you a heads up. Today, we're going to learn the book of Revelation is from God, it's about Christ, it's to the church, and it's for the world. So, let's get started. The first thing we learn is that revelation is from God. Let's look at the opening verses. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. The first word in this final book is the Greek word apocalypse. Now, we hear the word apocalypse, and we immediately think of doomsday scenarios and end-of-the-world narratives and dystopian movie franchises like Mad Max or Blade Runner or The Matrix. But the word apocalypse simply means disclosure or unveiling. It describes a pulling back of the curtain to reveal what's happening behind the scenes. Which means that Revelation is less about prediction and more about perception. And to put it another way, Revelation is less about what's going to happen and more about what is happening. For, for decades, people have read Revelation to figure out when Christ is going to return and what's going to happen to the church and how the world is going to end. But John tells us that this revelation is about what must soon take place because the time is near. So John wasn't writing about the distant future. He was writing about what was happening then and now. It's about what's happening spiritually everywhere all the time behind the scenes of human history. And what's happening, we're going to find out, is a cosmic conflict between the purposes of God and the powers of darkness. 
Now, most scholars believe the Revelation was received and written down toward the end of the first century, after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and as Rome found more and more reasons to punish and persecute Christians. But, but this book wasn't meant to be hidden away, to, to be brought out and explained thousands of years later in an entirely different context. It was meant to speak to the people who first heard it, to the first and second generation of Jesus followers, and to every generation of Jesus followers right up till today. It was written for disciples, trying to figure out what God is up to and what we're supposed to be doing in a world that often seems out of control and ungodly and headed toward disaster. So it's less about predicting what's going to happen as it is about perceiving what is happening. And that word apocalypse also suggests that revelation is less about speculation and more about imagination. More about less about speculation, more about imagination. Throughout history, Bible readers have tried to identify the characters and events we meet in Revelation, trying to identify them with earthly, historical people and events. Well, when I was a young Christian first encountering Revelation, popular preachers and authors were suggesting that, that JFK or some other politician was the Antichrist. Russia was the beast. Credit cards were the mark of the beast, and helicopters were the locusts that thundered like horses. It was fascinating, but all that speculation was and is misguided. These characters and events are meant to be understood symbolically, not literally or even historically. They represent spiritual forces and realities at work in the world everywhere, all the time. Notice that John is told to write down everything he saw, meaning the revelation is meant to be delivered and received visually. It's meant to engage our imaginations in ways that help us see and hear and even feel these forces at work in the world around us. Which means that the book of Revelation should be read more like the Chronicles of Narnia than like Calvin's Institutes. In the same way that a lion named Aslan helps us understand things about Jesus that are hard to put into words, a dragon pursuing a newborn son of a star-crowned woman helps us understand that our spiritual enemy will stop at nothing to thwart the purposes of God. But, but, but these images and narratives weren't a product of John's imagination. They were given to him by God himself. John makes that clear in his opening words. The revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him. Uh, later on in the chapter, he tells us a bit more. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see. Long before social media, John was an influencer. 
He understood the power of images and stories to shape culture and behavior. The emperor tried to stifle that influence by exiling him to a remote island in the Aegean Sea. But the plan backfired because that exile became a megaphone that allowed John's voice to be heard not only throughout the Roman Empire, but in every era and every empire right down to this very day. And don't miss the fact that it's the triune God who gives this vision to John. Verse 4, Grace and peace to you from him who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Father, Son, and Spirit are all active in the delivery and distribution of this vision. So the first thing chapter 1 makes clear is that this revelation is from God. But then John goes on to tell us that the revelation is about Christ. It's from God and about Christ. Let's keep reading down to verses 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him, that is Jesus, be glory and power forever and ever. In other words, the triune God is the giver of this vision, but Jesus in particular is the subject of the vision. John continues, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. John is reminding his readers that the Christ who came the first time to suffer and die for the world will come again in power and glory to rule and restore the world. And that brings me to the first of many illustrations you will hear from our recent trip to the Holy Land. Now, just a little bit of background, that trip to the Holy Land was, was supposed to happen back in April of 2020. It got postponed at the last minute because of you-know-what. And it's probably worth pointing out, given our financial needs right now, that the trip didn't cost Grace Chapel anything. The agency covered the cost for all the pastors who went. But it was a great trip, and we'll be telling you more about it as time goes by. And we do hope to do it again in a couple of years, so keep an eye out for some more information. But in any event, 50 Grace Chapel folks spent nearly 10 days in the Holy Land, three days in the region of Galilee, and the rest of the week in and around the holy city of Jerusalem. Now that picture was taken near the top of the Mount of Olives, just outside the city which is the mountain from which Jesus ascended into heaven and the place we believe he will appear when he returns. And if you look closely at the Mount of Olives, you'll see just, be just below the hillside is covered with tombs, thousands of stone sarcophagi of believers who want to be the very first to greet Christ when he returns. John's point is that Jesus will return to finish what he started, the salvation and redemption of the world. And to drive home the point, John offers us a majestic vision of Jesus that, that Lee and John shared with us a couple of weeks ago. 
Jesus dressed in a robe with a golden sash around his waist, eyes like blazing fire, a voice like the sound of rushing waters, armed with the double-edged sword of the word of God. This Jesus isn't the newborn babe lying in a manger, or the itinerant rabbi wandering the hills of Galilee, or the sacrificial lamb being led to the slaughter at Golgotha. This Jesus is a conquering king, returning to vanquish evil and to put right everything that's wrong with the world. John writes, Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Leah and John helped us understand that Earth's story belongs to Jesus, beginning, middle, and end. He was the Word at the beginning, speaking light into the darkness. He was the Word in the middle made flesh and living among us. He's the word now speaking into our lives by his spirit. And he'll be the word at the end, saying, behold, I am making everything new. When John pulls the curtain back on human history and on each of our lives, we see Christ present, active, accomplishing his purposes, finishing what he's begun. One of the most talked about movies these days is Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, winner of seven Academy Awards. It's described as an absurdist comedy drama. It's, it's about finding meaning in a meaningless universe, or multiverse, to be specific. Now, I haven't seen the film yet, but, but based on the previews, it's something of a modern-day apocalypse. It's an attempt to Unveil what's going on behind the scenes of the universe and our lives as we know it. One reviewer sums up the message of the film this way. Chaos reigns and life may only ever make sense in fleeting moments, but it's those moments we should cherish. Now, I, I don't want to beat up on what appears to be a very thoughtful and creative film. I think we'd all agree that life often seems chaotic, and that meaningful moments need to be cherished. So there are some common themes in these two visions. But in John's vision, it's not chaos that reigns, but Christ. And meaning isn't found in fleeting moments, but in every moment. Not just because of our choices, but because the risen Christ is present and active in everything, everywhere, all the time. So make no mistake, the book of Revelation is from God, and it's about Christ. The third thing we learn in chapter 1 is that Revelation is to the church. John says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Like most of the New Testament books, Revelation was a pastoral letter written to help believers in local churches to live like disciples of Jesus. 
Now, now these believers and these churches were at a crossroads. The last eyewitnesses to Christ's earthly ministry were or passing away or being executed. Greek and Roman culture was pressuring them and tempting them to compromise or even abandon their faith. And at times, it seemed to those believers, to those churches, that, that evil had the upper hand, that the way of Jesus wasn't going to work after all. So under the inspiration of the Spirit, John offers this dramatic vision of a conquering Christ and a world put right, encouraging those believers not only to stay true to their faith, but to join Christ in his healing, redemptive work in the world. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, John writes, because the end is near. Now, taking it to heart doesn't mean hiding it away somewhere. It doesn't even mean memorizing it. It means taking it seriously. It means living it. Let these words and images shape you, John is saying. Let them inspire you and compel you to get out there, to get involved in what's happening. It's urgent. So, contrary to how many people have read this book, Revelation is less about escape and more about engagement. Less about escape and more about engagement. Uh, for a long time, many Bible readers and teachers have concluded that, that Revelation promises believers escape from the tumult and the tribulations described in the book. That's what the so-called rapture of the church is all about. Now, I say so-called because the word rapture never actually appears in the Bible. It comes from the Latin translation of one verse in 1 Thessalonians, which describes, describes believers who are caught up, rapio in Latin, to meet Christ in the air when he returns. Leaving behind planes without pilots and cars without drivers and electric razors buzzing away in the sink, if you've seen any of the Left Behind movies. Now, as it turns out, the book of Revelation never mentions such a rapture. Uh, some readers have, have concluded that when, when John gets taken up to the heavenly throne room in chapter 4, it means that at some point the church will be taken up to heaven too to escape the judgments described in chapters 5 through 19. And, and while we can all understand the appeal of that idea, being escaping all those tribulations, it seems to miss the point of the whole thing. John was given this vision and told to send it to the churches in order to prepare believers and equip them for the challenges and hardships to come. He's reminding them that Christ will be with them through all of it, that he would ultimately triumph over all of it, and he wanted them to join him in the struggle. It, it's something like Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail in which he writes an open letter from a jail cell, calling on black and white citizens, and clergy in particular, to, to, to continue fighting for the civil rights of all people everywhere. Even though he was in jail, he was saying, it wasn't a time for fear or complacency or hesitation. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, he famously wrote. 
We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied up in a single garment of destiny. Well, in a similar way, and with equally vivid and powerful language, John's letter from exile called first-century believers to active engagement with the world around them, bearing up under suffering and bearing witness to the gospel of Christ. In the words of one commentator, Revelation is not about a rapture out of this world, but about faithful discipleship in this world. And not just a a run-of-the-mill discipleship, but what another scholar calls dissident discipleship. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. So, Revelation is from God. It's about Christ. It's to the church. And finally, Revelation is for the world. Now, when I say for the world, I really mean for the good of the world. But that messes up the rhythm. From God, about Christ, to the church, for the world. And that's important because too many people have read Revelation as as good news for Christians, but bad news for the world. And to be sure, there's a lot of judgment in the book of Revelation. But remember, judgment isn't the same as punishment. Judgment is about putting things right. It's about separating good from evil, right from wrong. And that's ultimately going to be good for the whole world. Good for anyone who prefers life over death, beauty over ugliness, truth over lies, and peace over war. Now that for the world aspect is is hinted at here in chapter 1. Verse 4, we're told that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. John wants us to understand that his message is for all people, that Christ rules over everything, everywhere, all the time. In verse 7, we read, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all people on earth will mourn because of him. When Christ returns, the whole world will know. And that could sound like bad news especially when we're told that the whole earth will mourn because of him. But when you go back and read from Zechariah, the prophet that uh, John is quoting here, we discover that the mourning wasn't over what was going to happen to them. It was mourning over what they'd done. It's the mourning of grief and repentance. And the prophet goes on to describe the new thing that God is going to do, how he will pour out grace on the people, opening a fountain to cleanse them from their sin. God's purpose isn't to punish and to destroy. It's to forgive and make new. Now, I don't usually like to look ahead to the end of a book. In fact, Karen will tell you, with some embarrassment, that when we go to the movies, I don't watch the previews. I literally close my eyes and plug my ears because I don't want to know the end of whatever story they're telling. But you almost have to go to the end to understand the book of Revelation because it's so dark and so disturbing, you would be tempted to just give up on it. 
I mean, after reading about seven bowls of wrath and four horsemen of the apocalypse and a ten-headed beast rising up out of the sea, you figure this story can't end well. But then you come to chapter 21 and you read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Then I heard a voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Now, having just spent a week there, I can tell you that the Jerusalem that is now is a remarkable place. Beautiful, vibrant, diverse, rich with history, and perhaps the most spiritually alive place on earth. But it's also a city racked by everything that's wrong with this world. Poverty and suspicion and hatred and political corruption and religious extremism and the awareness that it could all blow up at any minute. That's not what God has in mind for people or for the world. So John's vision ends with a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And in that new Jerusalem, we're told, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Revelation is for the world because God is for the world and Christ is for the world and the church is for the world, for the good of the world. So don't be dismayed by all the judgment we're going to find in the middle chapters of Revelation. It's symbolic language meant to help us see, hear, and feel God's anger over everything that's wrong with the world and his determination to put it right to vanquish evil once and for all. And he'll do that through the work of his son, the Lamb, who we'll talk about next week. And he'll make it known through his church, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks. And so the final thing we learn about this scary, difficult, and controversial book is that Revelation is less about destruction and more about restoration. It's about old things being made new, broken things being made whole, and lost and fallen people finding their way home. It's about Christ establishing his rule over everything, everywhere, all the time. So Revelation tells the story of God's victory over evil through Christ and invites us to play our part in that story. And in the weeks to come, we'll be discovering how Christ is doing that now and in the future, and how you and I and we can join him in that work. In fact, that's how the book ends, with an invitation. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. The bride is the church, all of us together. The one who hears is each of us individually, you and me, doing our part, telling his story. 
And the one who is thirsty is anyone and everyone who hasn't yet heard or embraced this story. If you've never done that, if you've never said yes to this story, or if you have said yes, but have somehow lost your way and gotten caught up in a different story, then I invite you to come and join us on this journey. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this remarkable, powerful book. Thank you for delivering it to your servant, John. Thank you for preserving it for us. And thank you for your spirit who helps us understand it. Forgive us, Lord, for losing sight of this grand vision, getting distracted and discouraged by the state of the world around us. Help us, Lord, to grasp this good and grand vision for our lives and for the world. And we invite you, Lord, beginning today, to rule over everything, everywhere, all the time, beginning in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and until he comes again. Amen.